Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, it's been a good run, but I think I'm done with being a sports fan. Um, It's just too painful, honestly. For the last few years, it's been fantastic. Uh, My soccer team, Liverpool, as you may be aware, um, won the Premier League, became European champions and World Club champions. But this season, the magic is gone and it's all very painful. And on Saturday morning, they capitulated to the very worst team in the Premier League. So um, I'm done. I'm going back into sports fandom hibernation for a while. Uh, But I think things are a little different on your end. So maybe I can start living vicariously through you. Yeah, it's not too late to jump on the Philly sports bandwagon, Kieran. Uh, we are still accepting applications. I can teach <laughs> you how to pronounce hoogie so you fit in and, and how to boo and how to properly counter when some idiot in the national media goes straight to the throwing snowballs at Santa Claus reference. Uh, but yeah, what a what a little run we're having. The Eagles are undefeated and the Phillies, as we record this Sunday morning, are one win from the World Series by the time this podcast drops. They could be zero wins from the World Series. My son and I went to the game Saturday night, and it was absolutely electric. Just an amazing experience to share with your kid. Uh, fell behind 4 nothing in the top of the first and battled back. And all these clutch home runs and hits where you start jumping up and down together at the crack of the bat, yeah. and then it's just <laughs> euphoria when the ball lands in the seats, like those three or four seconds while it's in the air and you think it's headed out. Uh, there's nothing quite like it. And then all these strangers next to you and in front of you and behind you, that's your family for four hours. Everyone's right. got a high five, the same rotation of like 15 people after every big hit. Um, it was just an absolute blast. So, uh, so yeah, Karen, ditch Liverpool, ditch soccer, buy yourself a <laughs> Kyle Schwarber jersey. I'll teach you how to sing Fly Eagles Fly. Uh, and I'll also teach you how to scream obscenities about how the Sixers need to fire Doc Rivers. Uh, th- this is going to be fun. You're going to love it. Ah, okay. Well, enjoy it while you can, because... The ash tree population in the country is dying, and soon there won't be enough left to make any baseball bats. So, wah, wah. Wow. Debbie, Debbie Downer, yes, yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh my God, I'm just well, trying. I'm just, nobody can have fun. I'm just trying to have a fun little chat here about sports, and yeah, there you are. Yeah. But I did, but I did see the photograph of you and uh, Elon. I thought to myself, that looks like two actual men right there. No, <laughs> nice as far as the Jewish religion is concerned, yes, we are. Excellent. Good stuff. <laughs> All right. Um, coming up on the show, uh, we will look back at Friday's Showbox triple header, capped by a mild upset and mildly controversial unanimous decision win for Senna Agbeko. Uh, we will open up the mailbag and answer your questions. Uh, we'll look ahead at some recently announced fights, including a pair of matchups that's giving boxing Twitter conniptions. Uh, but first... We'll spin it ahead just one week. On Saturday, on Showtime pay-per-view from Glendale, Arizona, Jake Paul returns to action in what on paper should be by some distance the toughest test of his nascent career as he takes on a man who 10 years ago was regarded as the premier MMA fighter in the world, Anderson Silva. Yeah, after building a 5-0 and record against a fellow YouTuber, a 5-foot-7-inch ex-NBA player, and two former MMA fighters, Paul did his best to demonstrate that he's serious about testing himself against pro boxers, lining up bouts against first Tommy Fury and then Hasim Rockman Jr., neither of them world beaters, but both credible challenges for a 5-0 and novice with no amateur experience. But through no fault of his own, neither fight came to fruition. Fury was ditched after being denied the right to fly to the U.S. for a kickoff press conference. And then Rockman proclaimed just a week before he and Paul were supposed to go head-to-head at Madison Square Garden in August that he wouldn't be able to meet the agreed weight limit of 200 pounds, forcing the cancellation of the whole card. So now Paul is going back to what's worked for him before, taking on a retired MMA star. But this appears to be a much bigger challenge than Ben Askren and at least a somewhat tougher challenge than Tyron Woodley. For starters... Anderson Silva was far more successful in the octagon than either of them and is generally regarded as one of the greatest ever to set foot in the cage. He was also renowned during his reign at the top for his striking ability. And perhaps most pertinently, he actually has some pro boxing experience, including a win over Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. On the other hand, he is 47 years old. 
He finished his MMA career 1-7 with one no contest after starting 33-4, and and he had one boxing bout in 1998, which he lost, one in 2005, and then two last year, the win over Chavez and the knockout of washed MMA star Tito Ortiz. Kieran, our buddy Brian Campbell, who knows far more about MMA than either of us, thinks this is a genuine test of Paul's credentials and said at the outset that Silva should be the favorite. And Steven Espinoza the other week said the same, that Silva is probably the favorite. The odds makers, though, do make Jake Paul the very slight favorite. Given what we've seen of Paul and what you know of Silva, what do you think? Uh, Is Paul's boxing career and undefeated record in genuine jeopardy here? Or is this an excellent piece of matchmaking on his part? And, And what's your pick? I think this is an excellent piece of matchmaking, but that doesn't mean that, that Paul's unbeaten record isn't in danger here. Um, it's an excellent piece of matchmaking because it is winnable for Paul, um, because beating Silva would really take him up a notch in terms of how he's perceived by casual fight fans. Uh, look, Anderson Silva is a huge name in combat sports, uh, and the fact that he has two recent boxing wins, one of which, as you noted, was against a deeply shot MMA fighter, but one of which was against a former world title level fighter, um, one whose career has been deeply disappointing, but nonetheless, a, a real boxer with a famous mm. name. But it's excellent matchmaking because there is genuine jeopardy for Paul. He could very easily lose. Um, and like you said, it looks like, you know, the odds makers kind of have it pretty much a pick and fight. And, and Silva might actually be the favorite. Um, here's why Silva might well win. For a start, he's va- he has vastly more experience in combat sports and mm. not significantly significantly less experience in the boxing ring the caliber of his opposition in the boxing ring is by definition higher than paul's simply because it includes one boxer with considerable professional experience um he has 40 mma bouts as well silver string of achievements in that sphere and um look I, I, there's a reason why there was at one point speculation about a crossover bout between anderson silver and roy jones i think MMA fans may may dispute this, but I think it's fair to say he is in many ways the MMA equivalent of Roy Jones. And, and for a long period, he was as untouchable in this sport as Roy was in, in his. But here's why Paul might win. Um, the Roy Jones analogy is actually extraordinarily apt when it comes to how his career ended. Um, once he began to lose, he couldn't stop losing. And his career ultimately fell off a very steep cliff. Um, he's won three fights since 2013. Um and, as you mentioned, not in, uh, insignificantly, he's 47. Yeah. Um, he's a remarkable 47. I mean, he's in the con- kind of condition that people like 10 or even 20 years younger could only dream of being in. I think even a 47-year-old somewhat washed professional prize fighter is going to kick the ass of most 25-year-olds. But Jake Paul at this point isn't most 25-year-olds. Um, look, he's not by any stretch of the imagination, the best 25-year-old professional boxer. He isn't by any stretch of the imagination the best 25-year-old cruiserweight, but he's in very good condition. He's been training and honing his boxing skills for a couple years now. He knows what it's like to be in the ring in the main event. Um, Would Jake Paul be able to beat a 37-year-old Anderson Silva? Not a hope. Um, I'm not even sure that Jake Paul from two years ago beats Anderson Silva from two years ago either. But with the extra seasoning he's had, with Silva just that bit older... And the fact is, when you're 47, no matter how good shape you're in, you're almost never going to be able to match a, a 25-year-old with some skills and in excellent shape. Um, and I also, and I'm inferring here from what I've seen and, and read, I, I don't know the man, so I may be completely off base here, but I'm not entirely sure that Anderson Silva really, truly cares about this. I mean, sure, he'd much rather not lose to Paul, but his reputation and legacy is secure. I think if they were going to be at all damaged, they would have been by his late career tailspin. I don't know that there's that much at stake for him here. So I wonder if that vital edge will be there for Anderson Silva. So what I see happening, I I wouldn't be at all surprised if initially Silva's experience and skills and muscle memory enable him to pick Paul apart from the outside, maybe embarrass him a little bit, but... Paul's going to keep going and he's going to keep coming. And I actually think the old man's diminished reaction times will be his undoing sometime in the fight, sort of around the midpoint of the fight, maybe a little earlier. Paul's going to uncork a right hand and Silva, who has sometimes had a habit of carrying his hands low, won't get him up in time and it'll be lights out and a very big win for Jake Paul. I'm going to say Paul KO six. Okay, interesting. So there was a moment in the All Access episode in which 
Jake Paul is looking at video of himself three years ago when he first started boxing. And it is remarkable how far he's come, both in terms of his physique and his technique, not to mention his accumulation of tattoos, which is not yeah. relevant to the fight, but is a striking transformation in its own way. Uh, but you got to take your hat off to him or take Floyd Mayweather's hat off to him. Uh, <laughs> whatever happens from here, even if he never wins another boxing match, he's done something really impressive in a short period of time and couldn't have done it if he hadn't taken the sport so seriously. But there's a ceiling, a, a limit to what you can do when you pick up boxing in your 20s. He may well hit that limit against Anderson Silva. Mm. Watching Silva box, you know, he's not great. He looks like an MMA guy trying to box and, and not like a natural fluid boxer, but he's effective. He's awkward. He's a southpaw. He has some basic skills and is poised in there. And I say this as a fellow 47-year-old, he appears remarkably non-washed at mm. an age which I know from experience, you're not supposed to be able to move quite like you used to. Um, but basically what you were saying, even a well-preserved 47-year-old, it is tough to keep up physically with a 25-year-old who's in shape. I think the odds makers are properly uncertain on this one. I'm uncertain on it. I could see go see it going either way. But if I have to guess on the most likely scenario, it's that Silva proves very tricky and difficult for Paul to fight and to land cleanly on. But Paul's being the aggressor. He's making the fight. Mm -hmm. I think there will be a lot of tough rounds to score that come down to what you like. And we might see a divide on Twitter. You know, wizened combat sports fans saying Silva outboxed him. Casual fans and Jake Paul fans saying Silva didn't want to fight and Jake kicked his ass. And I'm going to say the judges in Arizona keep the Jake Paul money train rolling. I'm picking Paul by split decision. Uh, mm. So we have the same winner in a very different method of getting there. Uh, either way, uh, don't don't expect me to root for my pick to come through. <laughs> um, the undercard is a mixture of boxing prospects and veterans, uh, more MMA stars, celebrities with some heavy use of scare quotes, as I say that word, uh, <laughs> and other professional athletes past and present. Uh, at super featherweight, 7-0 and prospect Ashton Silve takes on 20-4 and Braulio Rodriguez. At bantamweight, there's a 10-round rematch to an excellent 2016 fight between Alejandro Santiago and Antonio Nieves. MMA fighter Chris Avila, who is 1-1 one one as a boxer, takes on Mikhail Dr. Mike Varshovsky, who is making his boxing debut and is a social media influencer and physician who was once named the sexiest doctor alive by People magazine. And NFL running back Le'Veon Bell, who recently stopped fellow future NFL Hall of Famer Adrian Peterson in an exhibition bout faces Uriah Hall, another MMA fighter who is making his pro boxing debut and who beat Anderson Silva in 2020. Kieran, anything on that undercard interest you at all? So it's been a long time since I paid much heed to the NFL, so I confess to not knowing a great deal about Le'Veon Bell, although I did see a stoppage of Adrian Peterson. Um, I also know nothing of this sexy doctor man. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I have really honestly no interest in these non-boxers of whom I've never heard. Um, I am somewhat interested to see what uh, I'm assuming is the co-main event there, the Ashton Silve mm -hmm. uh, fight. Um, Jake Paul Cart have done a very good job of giving prospects and contenders and lesser known fighters the opportunity to elevate themselves. Um, Amanda Serrano, who is already a fabulous fighter, uh, most notably, um, but also Montana Love, for example. Um, Silve, from what I've seen of him, appears to have genuine talent and very fast hands, but also looks like he's, you know, he's got to work on his techniques, which is to be expected. He's 7-0. Oh. Um, it looks like a step up for him. Uh, I'm intrigued to see how he does. I think it might be a pretty good tussle. What about yourself? Anything? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say quickly that this undercard was not organized with me and you and most of our right. listeners in mind. It's, it's an undercard that makes perfect sense to draw and keep the interest of a Jake Paul pay-per-view purchaser. Uh, it's a 10-rounder, two 8-rounders, two 4-rounders. There's a hook to every fight. They'll hopefully kind of just keep the show moving. 
Yeah. I have some curiosity about Le'Veon Bell, who had a great career for the Pennsylvania professional football team that is not currently 6-0. and um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the main focus for us boxing heads, uh, as you pointed to, it, it's Ashton Silve. This is the golden opportunity that was afforded Love and Serrano on those other Jake Paul cards. He can really propel his career forward if he beats Rodriguez and looks spectacular doing it. He's just 18 years old flashes some real athleticism and talent and there's no rush with him but this fight can really get the marketing ball rolling yeah. all right so paul silver is the biggest event in boxing next weekend but it's far from the only one um in san diego on his own jojo diaz takes on william zapeda in a lightweight contest in london also on his own katie taylor defends her undisputed lightweight championship against karen elizabeth karabahal and on espn vasily lomachenko returns from the war in his native ukraine to square off against jermaine ortiz eric how many of these do you plan on watching if you could watch only one which one would it be this is a solid weekend of boxing. I, yeah. I totally forgot Diaz Zapata and Taylor Carabajal were happening on this date until I saw them in the outline that you put together for this week. Um, I plan on watching all of them. Um, they're all lower priority, of course, than a potential Phillies World Series game. And I <laughs> still can't believe those words are coming out of my mouth. Um, but but they're all worth watching. I mean, Loma is Loma. You know, a real boxing fan doesn't miss a Loma fight. Right. And Ortiz is credible, if not seemingly much of a threat to actually win. Katie Taylor is part of the three-headed women's boxing pound-for-pound monster. Uh, A true boxing fan doesn't miss a Katie Taylor fight at this point either, even if she is a minus 6,000 favorite on DraftKings. That's actually double the favorite that Lomachenko is in his fight. Um, And then Diaz Zapata. I'm actually not seeing odds on that yet, but I would have to assume they'll be kind of close to even. That's a serious competitive fight between two entertaining fighters with a legit top 10 slot in a stacked division on the line. I expect I'll be watching all of these in due time, whether Saturday or Sunday morning. But if I could only watch one, I guess I'd go with Lomachenko Ortiz because it's Vasily freaking Lomachenko. And and he may just find himself in a real fight. Um, But... This is really a, a something for everyone Saturday in the boxing world, and I, I plan to try to watch all of it. All right. Now, by contrast, we're coming off a lighter weekend in televised boxing, uh, only one card worth offering post-fight analysis of. On Friday, Showbox returned to where it all began, Bally's Atlantic City Casino and Resort, for a triple header. The main event saw a battle of super middleweights and a mild upset, as yet another boxer lost his unbeaten record on Showbox. Isaiah Steen falling to 16-1 and with 12 KOs via a unanimous decision loss to Senna Agbeko, who climbs to 27-2 and with 21 knockout scores were 96-94, 97-93, and 98-92. Those scores suggest a clear-cut, perhaps even comfortable win for Agbeko, but it was arguably far closer than the official scores made it appear, as reflected in the fact that everyone on the Showtime broadcast scored it a draw. Agbeko started a bit faster than Steen, but then Steen seemingly got into a groove around round five and used his superior boxing skills to a appear to pile up some points until Agbeko upped his pace over the final two or three rounds. Afterwards, Steen complained that he should have been getting 98-92 scores in his favor, while Agbeko called out Caleb Plant. Kieran, how did you score it? What did you think of the fight? And what do you see as the immediate future for both men? So I scored at 96-94 for Agbeko. Um, I gave 5, 6, and 7 to Steen without thinking too hard about it i gave eight nine and ten to agbeko and so the issue was like for me was those first four rounds um and i gave agbeko three of those and mostly because steen just took a long time to start showing us anything of consequence um we said last week that steen didn't super impress us with his win over calvin henderson but that he clearly had skills I, I feel even more now that there's just something missing in, in Isaiah Steen at the moment. I, I wonder if losing this fight will cause him to bite down and correct the flaws he has or whether they're ingrained. I, I think his problem is he's far too willing to cruise, far too content to admire his own work, assume he's in control on the scorecard simply because he feels comfortable. Um, the, the really great boxers don't leave anything to chance, especially at this early stage of, the, of his career, when he's trying to establish himself, trying to make an impression, trying to instill good habits. Um, I, I get the impression on the basis of the two bouts of his that I've watched that he might be 
bit too in love with his ability than he should be. I mean, he is good, Isaiah Steen. He's got skills. Um, when he started stepping toward Agbeko and firing that power jab in round five, he looked like he might be a class apart, but then he just let it slip away from him. Um, he did protest afterward that Agbeko was getting credit for punches that weren't landing, that he was blocking most of the incoming blows. And there's some validity to that. Um, you know, even where, over those last couple of rounds when Agbeko was kind of going for it, uh, Steen did block a lot, but Agbeko was at least pushing the action. Um, not that he was exactly following his blueprint with maximum effectiveness much of the time himself, of course, but... Steen landed just 18 power punches over 10 rounds, and that's just not going to get it done, no matter how many jabs you throw. Um, so where do they go from here? I, I feel like Steen almost needs to go back to basics. He's got the talent, he's got the skills, but he's got to improve his work rate. He has to stop coasting. He has to fight three minutes of every round and 10 or 12 rounds of every fight. He has to be less passive and more assertive. He's got to learn to take control of a fight and then keep control of it. Um, and as for Ekbeko, honestly, even though he won, I feel like this kind of level might be as good as it gets for him. I just don't see him overcoming a higher caliber of opposition. Um, he's got solid skills, but nothing exceptional. He was able to just about outwork a guy who didn't seem to want to work much at all. Um, but he is in a good position um, to get the call to fight bigger names, particularly when those bigger names can't get a better deal. He's the perfect voluntary title defense kind of guy because he's got some credibility, but probably somebody like a Caleb Plant is going to look at him and not consider him too much of a threat. He, he's yeah. the kind of guy for whom sanctioning bodies can be a good thing because he might be able to force his way into an elevated ranking and, and get a shot at a belt that way. So anyway, that's what I thought. I don't know what you figured. Yeah, I mean, this sounds right in line with what you were just saying, that I would say this was a bad loss for Steen more than it was a good win for Agbeko, although it certainly right. was a good win for Agbeko. But uh, I, I did think Agbeko deserved the narrow victory. It probably shouldn't have been as wide as 98-92, right. although I can see how it's possible to get there. It's not like Steen won more than a couple of rounds convincingly, but it probably deserved Slightly better scores than that. 97, 93, 96, 94. That was more reasonable. But I was just so disappointed in Steen early on. Mm -hmm. Agbeko wasn't doing anything great, but he was winning rounds because Steen was doing nothing but jabbing and circling. And the, the CompuBox stat that stood out to me was that midway through the third round, he had thrown four power punches. Yeah. Um, I, I think maybe the rust from his 15-month layoff was showing early in the fight, but then that doesn't necessarily explain why he lost all the rounds toward the end of the fight. Um, yeah, really disappointing performance from him. And um, this is also the second time in a row we've seen him encountering issues with his hair tie unraveling. <laughs> so he's got he's got to figure that out also. I don't know if do the... Berman Stiverne like electrical tape move maybe is, is the way to go. I don't know, but he, he's got to figure that out and he's got to figure out, as you said, how to get his punch out put up and, and be more consistent from round to round. Yeah. Um, the undercard featured two very different fights. Uh, in the co-main, Marquise Taylor inflicted the first defeat on Marlon Harrington in a super welterweight bout that was eh, not often especially captivating. Uh, Taylor won a unanimous decision in the eight-rounder by scores of 80-72 and 79-73 twice. He moves to 13-1-2 with just the one stoppage win, while Harrington falls to 8-1 with seven knockouts. The opener, in contrast, was an all-action, fast-paced heavyweight battle, which saw Moses Thunderhands Johnson prevail by majority decision over Elvis Garcia. Scores with 76-76 and 77-75 twice. With the win, Johnson climbs to 9-0-1 with seven knockouts, while Garcia falls to 12-1 with nine wins coming inside the distance. Eric, what were the highlights of the undercard for you? Well, every second just about of Johnson Garcia was a highlight. Um, and I think I liked Taylor Harrington a little more than you did. Um, I enjoyed the skill of Taylor, his body punching, his defense. He's tough to hit and tough to look good against. He held Harrington to just 16% of his punches landing and good for Harrington for fighting with appropriate aggression and desperation in the final round. It was for naught, but at least he came out trying knowing he was way behind. I thought it was a decent fight that just suffered in comparison mm. to what came before mm. it. Johnson and Garcia, man, these guys should fight each other to open every showbox card. <laughs> um, their physiques were sloppy. But the fight was not. They they yeah. came to rumble, but exhibited good technique along the way. These are both credible heavyweights. Uh, Barry Tompkins said early on it looked like it would come down to conditioning. 
and it turned out both were well-conditioned. Neither one faded significantly, and at the end of eight rounds, I had no clue who had won. I would have been fine with a draw. Uh, Elvis looked shocked at the decision, but all the scores seemed fine to me, and uh, Johnson won the eighth round on all cards. That ultimately proved the difference between a majority decision win for him and what would have been a majority draw uh, had Garcia won the eighth round. Excellent fight, well-refereed, and a couple of theoretical B-sides got some close decisions on this show, so uh, good good for them and for the judges for letting that happen. Um, and it all had no impact on our picks competition, as we only picked the main event. We both had Steen by decision. The judges award us no points, and may God have mercy on our souls. That's, that, that's a Billy Madison reference. I'm not sure if he got it, Karen. Uh, Brian Campbell would have gotten it if he were here. Well, but, uh, I mean, well maybe you should do a focus on Brian Campbell. <laughs> maybe I will. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> uh, anyway, scores stay the same as they were. I lead 70 to 68, and Brian Campbell is in third place with zero. So there's that. <laughs> uh, time now for the news. Um, and our main event features two bouts that were announced this week. And normally when fights are announced, people are happy. Not this time. <laughs> um, Thursday saw the official announcement of the pointless third matchup between Tyson Fury and a man he's already handily beaten twice already, Derek Chisora. A disappointing but entirely predictable and indeed anticipated culmination of a bizarre few weeks in, in which Fury retired, unretired, re-retired, <laughs> unretired, called out Anthony Joshua, withdrew an offer to Joshua, returned to demanding Joshua fight him, then changed his mind again and most recently declared that he suspects he will never fight Joshua as long as he lives. Um, but what really upset people was Terence Crawford telling ESPN later that same day that he and David Avanesian had signed contracts for a pay-per-view fight on December 10th in Crawford's native Omaha. The good news is we get to see Crawford in the ring. For the first time since sending Sean Porter into retirement last November. The bad news, it isn't against Errol Spence. Uh, Crawford told ESPN he was fed up with waiting for Spence and his side to respond to the latest round of negotiations. Prior to his announcement of his fight with Avanesian, reports were uh, suggesting that the latest target date for that clash with Spence was February 4th. Eric, the response to Crawford Avanesian has been predictably vitriolic, particularly yeah. coming from the heels of the Fury fiasco. While understandable, do you think such vitriol is justified, or is Crawford's action in taking this fight maybe not quite on the same level as, as what Fury did? You know, there are similarities in the situations, but differences as well, and different levels of frustration and blame. Um, before I get into to deeper analysis, uh, um, I want to call out two tweets from friends and podcast guests of ours worth uh, worth quoting. These are not the tweet of the week, but that's uh, because it was a really good week for tweets. Um, either of these could have won in a lesser week. Um, but first, we have Keith Eideck, who tweeted, Bob Arum called Fury Chisora a Christmas present for boxing fans in the U.S. at their press conference today. I checked with Top Rank. No exchanges allowed, unfortunately. <laughs> Quality snark there from our man Keith. Um, and on the other fight, Bill Detloff tweeted, Boxing Twitter, colon, God damn it, no Crawford Spence. The rest of the world, colon, who's Crawford Spence? <laughs> yeah. um, it's true that this is the best and most meaningful fight that can be made in all of boxing, and 95% of the Sports Center watchers who don't follow boxing have never heard of either Bud Crawford or Errol Spence. Um, anyway, the Fury situation is certainly the less interesting of the two. Um, he was never very serious about fighting AJ, and I'm not sure the world was as hyped for Fury AJ at this moment as he thought it was anyway, but if he wanted an easier fight before a potential showdown with Usyk in early 2023, great, fine, go for it. Um... I wish he'd found someone he hasn't already defeated twice. This is lame, even by tune-up standards. And of course, he was never retired. And I'm still annoyed that Ring Magazine fell for it, as yep. did our friends at TBRB. Um, Fury is the lineal champ, not Usyk. Um, I said at the time that Usyk Joshua 2 could have been for the interim title, uh, but it was not for the real title. Silly mistake there, but hopefully... That can be rendered meaningless after they fought each other. Um, but onto the more compelling situation. It's interesting that Crawford said he was tired of waiting for the Spence side, while other reports have the Spence side sending a contract with all yeah. the changes Crawford requested back to Crawford and getting no response. Someone's full of crap here. And yeah. uh, so much for this fight not being negotiated in the public sphere. Um 
I guess I don't mind waiting three more months and it happening in March or something, but that's if we can believe it will happen around then. It does feel increasingly like it might just totally fall apart, and if so, boxing fans have every right to be pissed the hell off at this ridiculous sport. The question is whether they should be pissed the hell off now or should wait and see if the fight happens in early 2023 before totally losing their minds. But obviously Crawford Avenisian means nothing to anyone. It's going to do zilch on pay-per-view. But it might just give Bud a key advantage if he and Spence do fight like three months later. Um, that is not insignificant. That, that maybe Bud and his team have dragged this out just right to make it so he comes in sharp and Spence comes in rusty, whereas mm. a November fight would have kind of tilted in the opposite direction. So, I don't know. On a lot of fronts, this is a wait-and-see situation. We'll know better five or six months from now just how much we should hate the fact that Crawford is yes. fighting Avanesian in December. But for the moment, we are certainly entitled to some hate about the fact that that fight's happening. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the note that I made is, is so much depends on what happened next. Um, mm. Yeah, if this really is Crawford just wanting to make sure he he takes a fight while the discussions are ongoing, that's that's fine. Not ideal, but but fine. Um, you know, I, I feel a lot more confident about that if, you know, this were, say, a, a Showtime fight and it was being part of a way to like, okay, these guys aren't going to fight till March. Let's build them up beforehand. But the fact that it's on this platform that nobody's heard of, mm -hmm. um, that probably nobody's going to buy the pay-per-view. I, I, I don't know. It has a. I'm, I'm very much trying to keep in mind here. Stephen, you know, sort of saying to us that most folks are only seeing bits and pieces and not right. the whole picture. So right. I'm trying to, and so I'm trying not to come to any conclusions here. But it has a bit of a bad feel about it. Um, we'll see. If it is delayed a few months, so be it. Um, but I think, I guess it depends on what Spence's counter move is. If, if he decides, well, shoot, if, if, if Crawford's going to fight, I'm going to fight too. Um, or even if he moves up to 154 to have a fight, then, uh, then we have cause for concern. And, and then there's the real possibility that this whole thing is going to fall apart. But if, like you said, if we end up having this fight in March instead of November, so be it, yeah. but let's just see how this plays out. And, uh, you know, not let either side off the hook here. And, right. you know, it's important for boxing fans and media to keep the pressure on these guys to make this fight happen. Yep. All right. On our news undercard, a few other fights of note to mention. Um, in a couple of weeks, on November 5th, Showtime Championship Boxing returns to the Armory in Minneapolis with a triple header. Highly regarded super middleweight contender David Morell takes on unbeaten Aidos Yurbasanuli in the main event. Yoel Gomez meets Jason Rosario in the middleweight co-feature. And in the opener, more middleweight action as Fyodor Cherkassin battles Nathaniel Gallimore. Uh, all pronunciations of names there are approximate. Uh, <laughs> we'll get them right by the time we do the ad read, I presume. Um, elsewhere, this is not confirmed, but ESPN reports that David Benavidez and Jose Uzcategui are finalizing plans for a January bout. That matchup had been slated for last November, but Uzcategui tested positive for a synthetic version of EPO. And across the pond in the land where conservatives get power, tank the economy, and have the decency to admit they suck and run away. <laughs> On November 26th at the OVO Arena in Wembley, England, with DAZN streaming, Showbox alum and undefeated heavyweight Jermaine Franklin will greatly step up his level of competition when he takes on recently defeated heavyweight championship challenger Dillian White. Kieran, your excitement levels for any of these matchups? Not Crawford Spence levels, but um, <laughs> but there's some good matchups here. Um, Benavidez Escadegui, you know, isn't terrible, but it is it's a bit disappointing to see how readily we give boxers who fail drug tests the opportunity to have mm. big fights. Um, it's disappointing only in a sense, you know, given that it was on the table quite recently. It's disappointing only in the sense of what alternatives there might be for Benavidez. It's tough to go from talking about fights with Canelo or Caleb Plant to, to Escadegui, but. That might be Benavidez's lot right now. But the thing is, I'd be a lot happier with him taking these kind of fights if he were doing them with far greater frequency. Um, he, I just don't think that Benavidez is fighting enough while he waits for these big opportunities. But um, I am interested in seeing Elvis Gomez again. In theory, Jason Rosario is a perfect test for him. I am a little nervous, though, given Gomez's punching power. The way um, Rosario has been reacting to some heavy punches in big fights lately. Uh, I am happy to see more of Morel. 
I am going to have to learn about Yebisalunuli very swiftly, including how to pronounce his name, because <laughs> yes. right now I know next to nothing about the man. Um, as for White Franklin, gosh, Franklin's been such a disappointment, hasn't he, whenever we've seen him. And we was, you know, thinking he was maybe going to be the next interesting or good or perhaps even great American heavyweight. He hasn't shown us that. Um, I'd be very surprised if he's able to overcome White, but this is a really big step up for him. And if he is able to win this fight, uh, Jermaine Franklin, then maybe he does have something going on there after all. But uh, it's an intriguing fight. I'm interested in all of these without being super tingly with anticipation. Yeah. Uh, finally, in the news segment, a special mention to our friends at Morning Combat, Brian Campbell, Luke Thomas and team, who won Best Sports Podcast of the Year in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Uh, congratulations to them. And given that I quasi-guest hosted once, congratulations to me. And thus, Eric, by extension to you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, richly deserved by the two of us. Um, somewhat deserved for Brian and Luke as well, I suppose. Um, and uh, yet again, you and I missed being nominated by one. If, the, if there were five nominees, we were number six. That's that's yep. my understanding. Um, but seriously, congrats to Morning Combat. Those guys do great work. It's nice to see good people who work hard get recognized. Yes. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, a, a win for one Showtime podcast is a win for all Showtime podcasts. There you go. Yeah. Uh, okay, it's time for the Tweet of the Week. Um, I've already shared a couple of runner-ups from uh, IDEC and Detloff. Sounds like a law firm. The law firm of IDEC and Detloff. <laughs> um, one more non-winner worth mentioning. Friend of the show, David Cushion, gets a good effort note and a pat on the back for tweeting, Excellent show, guys. Always love hearing from at Gordon Hall 340 and very fun top five list. I'm with you on Breadman, making a fantastic commentator slash analyst. Enjoy the showbox card and be well, guys. BTW, F dash 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 S dash 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 dash, etc. Tweet of the week, question mark, smiley face. So David gets points for following the formula, but it wasn't enough to beat out this week's winning tweet, which comes from your Dennis Ukas. He posted a video of himself working out and said a little something about his comeback. And one dope, not worth naming, responded, you should be in retirement because Errol Spence beat your ass. To which another dope, not worth naming, responded, he should be doing workouts on that eye. Shit was mangled, LOL. Always a sign that you have no sense of humor when you LOL your own comment, of course. Yes. Um, but anyway, Ugas quote tweeted that response about the eye and wrote, they are the sacrifices of my career to be a warrior bleeding in the arena. Thanks God fighting to leave a legacy and ensure a future for my family. I don't know you, but you sure are a miserable loser mocking my eye. You are a bad fan, bud. I wish you luck. Heart emoji. Uh, amen. You're Dennis. Uh, he is a bad fan and a miserable loser. And uh, while there's something to be said for always staying above the Twitter fray, there's also something to be said for occasionally putting the douchebags in their place with a touch of class, as Ugas did. I love this tweet. That is a great combination of being classy, taking the higher ground, and speaking the truth. I really yes. like that. Like at first, when you, I hadn't seen it, and okay. at first when you when you were reading it, I was like, "Wow, okay, he's being much, you know, he's a better man than I am." <laughs> right. uh, and then like, that's nice that he actually put that little boot in there at the end. God, I just. Who does that? I yeah. mean, and again, like if these guys were at a fight <laughs> and Dennis Ugas was right, was walking past, they'd be begging him for a selfie yes. or they'd be giggling with excitement. Um, but yeah, tough guys behind a keyboard. Eh? There's a lot of them. Yes, that's exactly what they are. But uh, you're Dennis Ugas, actual tough guy. Actual tough guy. No question about that. All right. Um, our listeners aren't tough guys behind keyboards. <laughs> They're good guys behind keyboards. Yes. And so we're going to turn the microphone over to them, metaphorically speaking, anyway. Uh, we put out a mailbag call, and you answered with some great questions. And, Eric, we're going to begin with, with one for you, and it is a topical one. Um, we had a couple of questions relating to the Fury, Joshua, and Crawford Spence situations. Um, let's go with one that's a bit more positive. Uh, from Atticus Winchester at Dope Cinema, Cinema with an S, who asks, in contrast to all the fights that took slash take too long to get made, if at all, and suffer as a result, what are some matchups that you think happened at the ideal time? So I know Atticus. I met him IRL. Uh, Atticus is not his real name, unfortunately. It's a great name. Um, <laughs> but anyway, great question. Kind of a top five list type of question, but mm. I, I ain't putting that level of work and research into it for now. Um, so 
off the top of my head, a few that stand out. Leonard Hearns won mm-hmm. early in their careers, but perfectly timed. Gaddy Ward, late in their careers, but also perfectly timed. All the Ali Frazier fights, but the first one particularly, a, a perfect build to that after Ali had missed three years. There are countless more, of course, but I'll just went, mention one other that seemed to be happening at exactly the right time, and then the fight was a disappointment, and that's De La Hoya Trinidad, uh, or I guess Trinidad De La Hoya officially. Right. Um, but, you know, that seemed to be happening right at the moment it should have been and didn't pan out. Um I'm sure if I put a lot of time and thought into this, I could come up with another hundred examples. Um, but those those are a few that, that stand right out. Um, any good ones occur to you that I didn't mention, Kieran? Well, there have been a couple this year, and it's uh, been up to the women to provide them. Shields mm. Marshall and Taylor Serrano, yeah. I would say, were two terrific fights that had everything going for them. Um, rivals meeting at the right time at at right height of their popularity and uh we got a couple of really great fights out of them i was also thinking of another deloya fight the first deloya mosley fight i thought that was great you know shane moving up to welterweight taking those few fights to get into welterweight shape first um i i I think probably certainly the first two barrera morales fights Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Actually, there's a lot. The, the third one turned out to be pretty darn well timed too. We didn't think so it going did. in. Didn't think it was exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think honestly, I, I don't want to be all like happy, happy, joy, joy because it's not my my nature. But I think more of them are than are right. not, and and it's understandable that we focus on those that don't get made or that get made poorly because as boxing fans, we're used to being jerked around. But I think quietly an awful lot of ones do get made at just about the right time and like i said the, i think the shields marshall and taylor serrano ones this year are good examples of that that doesn't mean that you know we should ease up on the ones that don't get <laughs> right yeah um all right next question here is for you karen uh haroldo letterman writes uh, rather desperately what are your favorite feel-good fights mine is madonna versus broner with ruiz joshua a close second and the first time cancio whooped machado this is like the third time I've asked this, so please answer. Chris Mannix never responds. Yeah, um, well, now, as good. always, where Mannix fails, we succeed. Absolutely. So, Kieran, your thoughts? So, you know, I'm assuming he means here by those those kind of fights that make you feel a little good, like it's a the, the loser is somebody you don't particularly like, or or you feel had it coming coming to him. So, um, so like, which makes me wonder what's what's with the hate for Alberto Machado? I like Machado. He's a nice guy. But I guess, anyway, I, I guess I would say that you don't have to. I think Madonna Broner, certainly part of that was yes. the hating Broner. But I guess or the, maybe you just like it, Cancio. Right. It can just and just like yeah. the or just the fun of the sort of unexpected result with a gotcha. with an Andy Ruiz or a Cancio or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, I guess, you know, if there's one I mean, as a since I've been as, uh, an alleged professional fight <laughs> observer, or at least a paid one. Right. Uh, I've tried not to let myself sort of have, have those kind of feelings. But um, I think probably when Miguel Cotto gained revenge over Antonio Margarito, mm. particularly given that I was in an arena that was full of Bariquas, um, that was one of them. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, Francisco Vargas knocking out Rod Salka, who came into the ring wearing wool oh, yeah. fronts and America first <laughs> on his waistband. That was good. Yeah. Um, but back when I was a fan, the whole Terry Norris, Luis Santana thing, when Norris was finally able to get a win over Santana at third time of asking, uh, I think all three times Santana left the ring on his back, but twice as a winner. Um, that was kind of satisfying when he was uh, uh, finally able to do that. Mm. Um, this next one is right in your wheelhouse. It is from Free Speech Man at Marco518, who asks, Do you think it might make more sense for Canelo to fight better Biev than Bivol? Uh, hashtag ask show pod. And he puts in parentheses, in my opinion, yes, better style matchup for him and for the lineal title at 175. I love it when folks answer their own questions, so <laughs> yeah. much less work for us to do. Um, but what do you think? Uh, given your long-established enthusiasm for that matchup, I'm going to assume your answer is also yes. It's a yes but for me. Um, yes, it's a better style matchup, at least for the fans, and maybe for Canelo. And yes, it's for the lineal title. But unfortunately, because of the Bivol result, mm. Canelo has 
unfinished business before he should be vaulting to a different fight at 175. And I'd say there's maybe a little worry that while Better BF style is less tricky and less length-based and thus less problematic for Canelo, it's also more likely to result in Canelo stretched out on the canvas for the first mm. time in his career. I do still love Better BF Canelo, and I would prefer it over Bivol Canelo too, but I'm not sure the timing is right. Um, here's my alternate plan. If Bivol beats Zerto Ramirez then he should take on better Biev mm. for all the marbles at 175, while Canelo stays at 168 for another fight, maybe takes on a top opponent like a Jamal Charlo or something. And then Canelo versus the better Biev Bivol winner, that's the ultimate light heavyweight yes. mega fight, maybe in September 2023 or May 2024, something like that. There you go. It can it can be the week before Crawford Spence. <laughs> which which of those dates makes it the week before Crawford Spence? If we're lucky, May twenty twenty four. Okay. <laughs> Come on now, Karen. Don't be I negative. Know. You were you were you were you were so positive for like I three know. seconds I of the podcast. I keep it oh, well. I know. All right. I know. Um, finally, a mailbag question from our friend David Cushion, who I name checked during the tweet oh, of the week segment. Uh, yeah, he gets his foot in the door again by asking. Guys, what are your top three sports movies? Doesn't have to be boxing movies, but can be. This is inherently flawed because Kieran hasn't seen the Rocky movies yet. Uh, for me, it's Rocky 3, parentheses, I feel your eyes rolling, Eric. Rudy and Karate Kid, parentheses, does that count? Question mark. Uh, thanks, guys, exclamation point. Uh, I spelled out all of the punctuation uh, within, within <laughs> that note. Kieran, take it away with your answer. Um, did the Predator movies count? Because hunting other species is sport for the Predator. <laughs> guessing not, though. Probably not. Probably not. I have never heard that referred to as a sports movie. <laughs> well, that's, again, this is where we're sort of setting new standards here on this podcast. Are but... we going to do a whole a side discussion of whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie? <laughs> well, well, later this year, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> um... So in the human sport category, um, yeah. I, I do think boxing movies generally make for some of the best sports movies. Uh, for me, look, I'm a big Raging Bull fan. I, I, I've always liked that movie. Um, I'm a Scorsese fan anyway. Um, mm. That's got to be one of them. Um, I do also like Formula One racing. I thought Rush was fantastic. Do you ever see that? Is I that didn't. That I, saw, I saw Ford v. Ferrari, but not Rush. Well, that was also very good. Um, and I would actually, I considered putting that on my list, okay. but I thought, well, I can only have one motor racing movie. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, Field of Dreams is the other one. A lot of people would pick that. But I might take something a bit more lighthearted. Um, I will take, although it also sort of had a little bit of a social commentary. You know what? I'm going to take Bend It Like Beckham. So I saw, the, I saw the beginning of that and never made it all the way through, which is not necessarily a reflection on whether I was enjoying it or not. I, we, we know about my narcolepsy. So, right. Uh... <laughs> you started watching it at seven. <laughs> right, something like that. I mean, the sun was already beginning to go lower in the sky. Oh, so well, there you go. Dangerous. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, you've only had 20 years to finish it, so that's like <laughs> no time at all. Yeah, what can I tell you? Yeah. Didn't, didn't see that one. <laughs> um, so first I'll note, uh, before I give my own top three, that um, Rocky Three does not make my top 100, I don't think. Sorry, <laughs> David. Um, but I, I do think the original Rocky... That might be my number three. Um, and my number two comes from the same director. It's a movie David mentioned, the original Karate Kid. Um, I do count that as a sports movie, David, and it is one of my absolute favorites. Every second of the Daniel-Miyagi relationship is gold. I can never get tired of that movie. Um, but my number one, it's a polarizing choice. Either you love it or you think it's horrendous and corny. And you just mentioned it a moment ago, Kieran, almost making your list. I absolutely love Field of Dreams. Okay. Ties right back in with the, the Phillies talk and taking my son to the game and all that. I mean, I well up every time at the end. Mm. I'm not afraid to admit it. I get why some people don't like Field of Dreams. I mm. suppose it's their right to be cynical to the point of being dead inside. But uh, but I love it. <laughs> um, now, Kieran, as a, as a follow-up to that question from David, um, Homer asked us, with the Creed 3 trailer dropping this week, can we expect Kieran to be assigned to rank his top five Rocky movies anytime soon? Kieran, instead of waiting, want to take a crack at that now? So I will pick the original Rocky because that is, <laughs> I have seen it. Okay. Um, Good I've reason seen... to put it at number one. <laughs> yes. I've seen Creed. 
Uh-huh. So we'll put that in there. <laughs> okay. Um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> not a Rocky movie. Not a Christmas a movie, movie. Not a sports movie. None of those. Well, that, this doesn't specify sports movie. It says Rocky movie with Rocky and, and like air quotes kind of thing. Okay. All right. So you're, you're... really not going to like when I pick the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. <laughs> well, also, isn't that movie critically panned by everyone? Talking about the one with uh, like Jason Alexander and Robert De Niro. <laughs> right. But still. Okay. It's a question. <laughs> um, and uh, Mask, which is the story of Rocky oh, Dennis. Okay. <laughs> wow. How's All right, that? so, well, I guess if you manage to pick five movies that you've seen, I guess that's better than ranking rock, uh, movies from the Rocky Balboa story that you haven't seen. So <laughs> I didn't actually watch the Rocky and Bullwinkle movie. Oh. <laughs> All right, well, that's a win for you from what I understand. <laughs> um, I'll just note quickly, uh, hardest of hard passes here for me on Creed 3. Uh, I've noted many times that Creed 2 was absolutely unwatchable, and this trailer suggests a similarly stupid waste of everyone's time my rocky rankings when this is all said and done uh, will be incomplete because life is too short for me to watch creed 3 wow look at you yes taking a stand well it's it's good to have some kind of stand to take at some point in life <laughs> sure all right i'm sure i could i could start it but i'd fall asleep very early it's just not even worth trying Right, and as we know, it'll take you at least 20 years to finish, so... <laughs> right. All right. Um, to finish, it is time for this week's Top 5 Challenge. And, um, Eric, apart from that little slip of the mask, as it were, there, um, as you noted, I've tried to be a little bit positive mm -hmm. in this podcast. So, you know what? Um, I'm going to stay a little bit positive with the Top 5 Challenge. I don't think it's a hard one, actually, and there is almost by definition no wrong answer whatsoever. Okay, I want you... I like that. Indeed, exactly. Let's take a look at active boxers and come up with your list of the five that you most enjoy watching. The guys who, or women who are just the most fun, who if you had to get somebody to say, watch this person and you will understand why I enjoy boxing and sit them down in front of the TV, of those who are active right now, mm -hmm. who are the ones you would pick? Okay. All right. I like this. This should indeed be fun. And, uh, I, I like limiting it to the the active ones. takes the It takes the easy slam dunk that I would have just like listed Gaddy and Ward <laughs> as many times as possible. <laughs> can't can't include those guys. So okay, but the top five who come closest to uh, thrilling me the way Gaddy and Ward once did. Uh, I like this. This should be fun, and uh, I like that you also mentioned in there guys or women. Um, yes. because it, I could very easily see a, a female fighter cracking this list. So, um, all right, cool. I can, uh, I can handle that assignment. I do believe it was either going to be that, or I was, I wanted you to have a nice easy one. So it was a choice between that or just name five things. <laughs> <laughs> see, but it's, it's hard to rank them when it's that wide open. Right. It, it, then I, you know, how I'm like, just looking at things one, on my oxygen. desk, right? I mean, it's gotta be one, right? <laughs> right, right. I guess so. You would think, but then, then now my children are not number one. That's a problem. But and even... oxygen, you wouldn't have the children, you see, so. <laughs> right. So yeah, the, it, it honestly, you think it's easy until you yeah. start to think about the fact that you have to rank it. And that actually becomes about the toughest top five you could assign me. So no, I'm going to stick with uh, <laughs> okay. active boxers. I enjoy watching. All right. We'll but I'll keep that. that other one in my back pocket. <laughs> okay, great. For when we're struggling. Let's hope you never have to reach into that pocket. Indeed. All right. Uh, that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We will be back next week with a recap of the Jake Paul Anderson Silva event and to look ahead to the following week's episode of Showtime Championship Boxing. Until then, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be welcome.